Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. You alone are the Lord, creator of the heavens and all the stars, creator of the earth and those who live on it, creator of the ocean and all its creatures. You are the source of life, praised by the stars that fill the heavens. Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 6 Contemporary English Version Because of our faith, we know that the world was made at God's command. We also know that what can be seen was made out of what cannot be seen. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, Contemporary English Version Hi, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. Today, we are continuing our series that we call The Truth in Genesis. To help us do that, we've invited one of the premier scientists and experts on the question of origins, Dr. Jonathan Sarfati, to be our guest in the studio for the next several weeks. He's written a number of widely selling books that challenge the conventional views of what chemistry, geology, and paleontology say about the age of the universe and the origin of life. Dr. Sarfati has sold hundreds of thousands of books, such as Refuting Evolution, Volumes 1 and 2, By Design, The Greatest Hoax on Earth, and The Genesis Account. During this series, Dr. Sarfati is addressing a wide variety of topics, including problems with conventional dating methods, affirmative evidence that the universe is actually fairly young, scientific challenges to life arising from non-living chemicals, and evidence that the Earth's surface provides abundant evidence of a worldwide flood. We are even going to do an entire show just on dinosaurs and what the latest dinosaur research actually tells us about the Earth's history. In our last episode, we learned that there are a number of very significant scientific problems with the dating methodologies that are typically used to assign purported dates to events of the distant past. Today, we're going to build on that discussion and learn that there is a substantial volume of empirical observation that actually indicate that the Earth is much younger than traditionally assumed. But before we get too far into our discussion, Dr. Sarfati, would you like to say a word of greeting to the Anchored by Truth listeners and maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be persuaded that so much of what is typically taught about the age of the universe and Earth isn't supported by real science? Well, good day, listeners. Uh, it's nice to be on Anchored by Truth again. It's been a good time so far, and I hope to enjoy more time spent with you guys. My name is Jonathan Sarfati. I'm a PhD scientist from both New Zealand and Australia, but I've lived in this country for over nine years now. I've been working for Creation Ministries International, which is creation.com. I've been this, doing this job for about tw- over 20 years now. 
I started off doing it in Australia, but for the last nine plus years, it's been in the Atlanta office. And what we do is we try to show that the Bible can be trusted from its very first chapter, the most attacked chapter by the secular world. And we show that true science supports what the Bible says, the details, the time frame, even the order of events. As I mentioned in our last episode of Anchored by Truth, you addressed some of the major problems that affect the validity of dating methods, such as the use of radiometric dating. Would you mind briefly reminding our listeners of the major points that you made? Well, first, the idea of an old earth came about over 200 years ago when people rejected the idea of a global flood doing most of the work forming rocks and fossils. So instead, they looked at slow and gradual processes happening today and assumed this has always been happening. So it would have taken millions of years to form what we see. Now, more recently, they've tried to back it up with radiometric dating and various other dating methods. However, they all have certain assumptions. First of all, how much of the stuff was there to begin with the initial conditions? The second is, has anything got in or out of what you tried to measure, your contamination, leaching? And the third is, has the process you're analyzing been at a constant rate throughout the whole time through the alleged millions or billions of years? Those are three great assumptions. And I can promise you, when the dates don't match what they would like, they will go and question the assumptions. Thank you. That was very helpful. It's so important to be very clear about the fact that there's a difference between scientific evidence and the interpretation of that evidence. Contrary to popular belief, not all scientists are unanimous that the universe and Earth are billions of years old. There are many highly qualified scientists who have pointed to empirical observations that can only be explained by an Earth that is thousands of years old. Now, I have told you that all dating methods have assumptions, and this applies to dating methods that point to a young Earth as well as an old Earth. I want to make that pretty clear. The point is, if the evolutionists want to use these assumptions to push an old Earth, then they can't object when we point to certain things which, using their assumptions, point to a much younger Earth than they could possibly cope for. They, they, they don't want a young Earth because evolution would be impossible under a young Earth. Now, as I said, evolution is impossible no matter how much time you have, but it's certainly impossible under a young Earth. So let's expand on the basic point that you're making. What types of evidence exist that would place the age of the Earth and the universe in the range of thousands rather than millions or billions of years old? In short, let's assume uniformitarianism is true. But if uniformitarianism were true, it would, in fact, undercut its own foundations, wouldn't it? So what we're trying to do is show there are certain processes that if you use their assumption of constant rate and plausible initial conditions and assume a closed system, they point to a date far younger than the alleged millions or billions of years. So it's sort of fighting the opponent with his own weapons. Okay, now the philosophy behind the old earth belief is called uniformitarianism, and that can be summarized as the present is the key to the past. 
So what they're doing is assuming that what we see happening today has always been happening and more or less at the same sort of rate. And when you have this assumption, it seems to point to millions of years to form the rocks and the fossils and other things we observe. But in fact, if you apply the same uniformitarian principles to other processes, in fact, about 90% of things, it points to an age far younger than the millions and billions of years. Can you share a specific example of what you're thinking about? Now, the formation of diamonds is a very hard thing to explain under the uniformitarian slow and gradual process. When you look at the phases of carbon... See, diamond is most stable under high pressure. It's a denser phase than graphite is. So under low pressure, under ordinary pressure, graphite is actually more stable than diamond. I mean, you're not going to lose your diamonds finally turning into pencil lead because the conversion rate is just too slow to measure. But how do you go from graphite to diamond? You have to apply enormous pressure. And this is what you get deep inside the earth. You have enormous pressure. But the problem is if you release the pressure slowly and gradually, the diamond is going to convert back to graphite. So you've got these conditions of high temperature and pressure in the deep inside the earth, which enables the diamonds to be formed. But you cannot release them slowly to the surface because if it's still warm and the pressure is dropping, the diamonds will anneal back to graphite. So what you have to do is quench it in this high pressure phase by quickly, supersonically, literally supersonically erupting them from deep inside the earth to the surface. And the temperature drops so quickly, the diamond doesn't have a chance to rearrange into graphite. So the fact that we have diamonds proves that they're incredibly intense processes, incredibly fast eruptions that preserve the diamond in that high pressure crystal structure. So the very formation of diamonds shows catastrophic rapid processes which undermine the uniformitarian dogma of slow and gradual processes. What is carbon-14? And how does its presence in diamonds and other substances indicate that the Earth cannot be as old as traditionally assumed? Okay, carbon comes in several different types. Okay, the most common one is carbon-12. Okay, but there's another one called carbon-13. One in every hundred atoms of carbon, the carbon-13. That is stable, so is carbon-12. But one in a trillion carbon atoms are carbon-14, and this is unstable. And it decays at a measurable rate. And they use the term half-life to describe the rate of decay. Now, the half-life is the time taken for half the stuff to decay. So after one half-life, half of it's left. After two half-lives, half of a half. A quarter, then an eighth, then a sixteenth, a thirty-second. And so when you do the mathematics, you can work out how long it should last before you can't detect any more of the stuff, Okay. Now, carbon-14 has a half-life of 5,730 years. So when you go to 20 half-lives, there's only about a millionth of the initial amount left, which is below the detection limit. So that when you could do that, you can work out that if something was over 100,000 years old, there should be no carbon-14 left in it. However, see, coal was meant to be hundreds of millions of years old. Coal was mostly carbon, and diamond is basically pure carbon. And they're supposed to be over a billion years old, and yet both of these have been found to contain carbon-14, which should have all decayed if it were as old as they claim it is. 
So the very fact that we're finding carbon-14 is very strong evidence against the millions of years. So you have to pick one. Is carbon dating reliable or are the millions of years true? Pick only one. What is the faint young sun paradox, and how does it demonstrate that the sun cannot be billions or millions of years old? Okay, well, first of all, I have to explain how the sun produces its energy. Now, in the 20th century, they discovered the process called nuclear fusion, where little atoms combine to form a bigger atom with the release of enormous amounts of energy. And this is what powers a hydrogen bomb. The hydrogen atoms come together, produce helium with huge energy release. In fact, a lot of matter is changed into energy according to E equals mc squared. You've heard of that formula from Einstein, right? And the sun converts about 4 million tons of matter into energy every second. Okay, the point is, in the core of a sun, you have four hydrogens coming together to form one helium. So you're contracting when this process happens. And that means the core is contracting, but when the core contracts, this process becomes even faster and more vigorous. So you can see as the sun burns its fuel, it becomes even more efficient at burning. So you find the sun is getting hotter and more luminous as it ages. Okay, now work back from today and imagine going back billions of years. If you go back in time, at the time of the supposed birth of life on Earth, the sun would have been much cooler than it is today, which would have been the Earth should have been frozen, and yet all the evidence seems to point to, if anything, a warmer climate in the past than today. So how do you have the evidence of a warm climate, and yet the sun should have been much cooler in the past? Now, the only resolution is that the sun has not been around that long. Over a scale of a few thousand years, it doesn't make too much difference. But over a scale of billions of years, this makes a huge difference. And we should be able to see evidence of that. And yet, the evidence is a warm Earth, not a cold Earth. Why do short-period comets pose such a challenge to the belief that the universe is billions of years old? Now, first of all, you have to understand what the comets are. They're sort of dirty snowballs. That's the best description. And you know, they also revolve around the sun in very elongated elliptical orbits. And they have a very predictable period. And that's actually, we know, because of the mathematics of the great creationist scientists, Johann Kepler and Sir Isaac Newton, both staunch Bible-believing creationists. They discovered the laws of planetary motion that apply to the comets as well. The point is we only see a comet when it gets close enough to the sun for the sun to evaporate some of its ice and dust and forms a tail. And the tail always points away from the sun. It's been pushed by the solar wind. But the point is, every time we're seeing it, we're seeing part of the comet disappear. And so you can calculate every time it goes past, it's losing some stuff. So after a certain number of orbits there should be nothing left to evaporate and we should no longer see it. So the fact that we're seeing comets shows they couldn't have been doing this for very long. So this puts an upper limit on the age of comets to about 10,000 years. And since they believe that comets were formed with the rest of the solar system, it puts an upper limit on the age of the solar system as a whole. Well, I'm sure evolutionists and those who believe in an ancient universe are aware of this problem. They must be aware of the implications to their theories of the existence of comets, especially short-period ones. So how do they respond to this observation? 
Okay, now evolutionists are aware of this problem and they try to get around it by proposing there's a source that keeps on resupplying the comets that are evaporating. And the supposed source of the short period comets is called the Kuiper Belt. And the thing is, that's supposed to be beyond the orbit of Neptune. Now, there are certainly some objects that have been detected, but they're much, much larger than comets, thousand times larger than comets, so therefore they could not be the source of the comets that we see. So still the Kuiper Belt does not seem to be an adequate source of the short period comets. Now there's also the issue of long period comets, and they propose another source called the Oort Cloud which is supposed to be way beyond, almost halfway to the, to the nearest star. That's how far away it is. So of course, there's no observational evidence for it. So it's a, it's a pure conjecture to try to explain away the existence of the comets that we see. And there are numerous scientific problems with the Oort cloud as well. So if you want to look up that, you can go to creation.com and search for comets and you find a number of articles about both the short and long period comets and how they pose a huge problem for the billions of years. What examples are there of empirical observations that are typically used to support an ancient universe that are actually better explained by biblical time periods? One of the, the most interesting evidences for a much shorter time scale is supernova remnants. Now, a supernova happens when a huge star explodes. And so a supernova is so energetic, it outshines the rest of the galaxy it's in. It's incredible. And so it's blowing out all this matter, and they can work out the behavior of the cloud that's been blown out called a supernova remnant. There are three different stages, and the point is we can work out how often a supernova would be expected in a galaxy. But the point is, under millions, billions of years, we should find a lot of the third stage remnant. But the point is, there are incredibly few of these. There should be lots of those if the galaxy would be billions of years old and plenty of supernovae had exploded. There should be always third stage remnants about. So it's an issue of the paucity of the number of third stage remnants as a pointer that there haven't been a chance for many of them to explode. That's quite a powerful evidence. And it actually was the first ever Young Earth article I ever wrote for Creation magazine. In your opinion, what are three or four of the most important facts that point out the conventional age assigned to the universe is unlikely to be true? Well, I think the main thing when it comes to that is the inability of the usual theories of the universe to explain how they could happen. Like, how do we explain where stars came from in the first place? You see, so a lot of the theories can't explain stars and galaxies, and yet they're the most important things in the universe, you think, but yet the Big Bang cannot explain them. Like, for instance, you can't really explain stars by a collapsing gas cloud because we know that gas wants to expand, not contract. You see, so you can't get enough gravity for the gas cloud to collapse. So what do they propose? Well, maybe they propose the cloud loses some heat by radiating from dust. But where do you get the dust from? The Big Bang can only produce hydrogen and helium. So they have to use pre-existing stars to explain the stars, like maybe a supernova exploded and compressed the gas cloud. But you can't get a supernova unless you already have a star. You can't get dust until you've already had stars to produce the atoms to make the dust, you see. So 
getting the first stars is a huge problem for the Big Bang. So it's a case of the big picture. The Big Bang evolution doesn't produce the things that we see. Could you briefly summarize the evidence that demonstrates that the universe is actually much younger than normally assumed? It's a bit of a different issue, you see, because, again, some of the theories of creationists and distant starlight have the idea the Earth is 6,000 years old, but maybe much more time has elapsed in the outer reaches. That's according to the Humphreys and Hartnett models anyway. I think the supernova does seem to point that the whole universe is quite a lot younger than it's seen, but it's actually... Oh, one more thing. Okay, there's one more thing I can tell you, actually. It's something that Russ Humphreys likes to use, and it's the the rotation of the galaxies. When you see very powerful telescopes, you look at galaxies, you see these really nice spiral arms of some of the galaxies. They're really quite spectacular. The problem is, though, they wind up, they shouldn't be there because it should have wound itself up. If they've been going for millions of years, it should have wound itself up by now. And yet we're still seeing the spiral arms. So again, what we see doesn't fit the idea of millions and billions of years of winding. Dr. Sarfati, what does the term lunar recession mean, and why is it relevant to discussions about the age of the Earth? Okay, the issue of lunar recession, I mean, it goes back to when we went to the moon 50 years ago, and some of the astronauts left reflectors, retro reflectors that would reflect a beam back in the direction it came from. So thanks to those retro reflectors, we can shine lasers onto the moon, bounce them back, and tell you how far away it is and how fast it's moving. And it turns out the moon is receding an average of four centimeters, one and a half inches per year. Okay, the average is getting a little bit further away. So when we try to work that backwards, see what's happening is the Earth is rotating, the moon is, is revolving around it, and the moon is slightly slowing down the Earth, but the Earth is also pulling the moon outwards into a more distant orbit. A very small effect, but the thing is the effect gets stronger the closer they are together. Now, when you do the mathematics, if you go right back to 1.4 billion years, the moon and the Earth would be touching, which of course is not possible. And in fact, even before it got to that stage, the moon would be in what's called the Roche limit, which is the limit to which a gravitationally bound body can exist. But below that, it shatters. And that's what they think might have happened to Saturn's ring. A moon may have shattered and caused those rings, you see. So there's a limit of, of about a little over one billion years before the moon would be so close that it would shatter. And also, at that time, the tides would be ginormous. I mean, because a tidal effect depends on the inverse cube of the distance. So if it's 10 times closer, the tides will be a 1,000 times greater. So a pretty horrific sort of tides, I'd imagine. So it puts a limit to the age of the Earth-Moon system, which is far less than the 4.5 billion years they bandy about. What resources would you recommend for Christians who want to study the scientific basis for believing in a young Earth and universe? Well, I'd say one of the, the things you could look at is uh, my book called The Greatest Hoax on Earth. Another one is a collaborative effort called Evolution's Achilles Heels, because this has a number of different chapters on where evolution goes wrong. Achilles Heels, the weaknesses of the theory. And there's a chapter on cosmology, which shows how the Big Bang doesn't work. And that's the key theory for evolution, and yet it has huge scientific problems. 
And another chapter was written by a nuclear physicist showing that radioactive dating has major assumptions that can be questioned, but also that if you apply them consistently, there are certain processes that point to a much younger Earth than people normally tell you. So the big takeaway from our discussion today is that there is a substantial body of scientific observation that can only be explained by an Earth and universe that are substantially younger than is typically thought. This means that the conclusion we get from Genesis, that the Earth is thousands rather than billions of years old, is amply supported by scientific evidence. Dr. Sarfati, we'd really like to thank you for joining us on Anchored by Truth. Just as a reminder to our listeners, this show, as well as other Anchored by Truth episodes, will be available by podcast shortly after the broadcast airing. So any listener today who has a friend or study group that could benefit from Dr. Sarfati's depth of knowledge can go to their favorite podcast app and search on Anchored by Truth by Crystal Sea Books. Today, for our closing prayer, how about if we pray a prayer of adoration for the Father, who is the one who spoke the heavens and earth into existence. A prayer of adoration of the Father. Almighty, gracious, and heavenly Father, we praise you and adore you and bow down before you. We are overcome by thoughts of your majesty and excellence, and we humbly come to you to worship you in spirit and in truth. We know from your word that you are a God in whom there is no imperfection, want, or lack. You are perfect in all of your attributes and all of your ways. Because you are the source of all light and illumination, there is no shadow or dark place in you. All creation stands in silent awe when it turns toward you. You dwell in the loftiest of the high places, surrounded by the angels that you created to serve you. Glory is your robe, power is your mantle, exaltation your drape, and sovereignty your cloak. Mere words could never describe your grandeur, yet we are exalted as we try. You alone are God. There is no other God like you. There never has been, and there never will be. There will come a time when you will fully exercise your dominion as is fitting and right, and you will set right all that does not conform to your will. We look toward that day when we can stand breathless and amazed at your beauty and holiness. Until that time, let us grow in the knowledge and appreciation of your unmatched glory and let all honor, praise, and worship be given only to you. In Christ's name, let all who know him praise the Lord. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time when we'll continue our discussion with Dr. Sarfati and we hope that you'll find some time to encourage friends to tune in also or listen to the podcast version of this show. Crystal Sea Books would like to make sure that all the Anchored by Truth listeners know that if they enjoy listening to the prayers that are presented at the end of each episode, those prayers are available for individual use from Amazon. There are two different prayer albums available. One album is prayers for family and friends, and another is prayers about faith and freedom. 
Those prayers can make a thoughtful centerpiece of daily devotions, or they can be used with Bible study groups or small group meetings. There are even prayers for friends who are sick or about to undergo medical procedures that you can share with those who are experiencing difficult moments. Sometimes it's hard to find just the right words to speak to people or even to speak to the Lord. These earnest and thought-provoking prayers can help, not to be substitutes for your own fervent prayers, but as a sort of friend to come alongside and let you know that others have walked through the valley too. The individual prayers, or an entire album, are available for a modest fee, and all the funds go to support the work of bringing the truth of Scripture to our current culture. To find the prayer albums, just go to Amazon and search on Purposeful Prayers to find either the Faith and Freedom album or the Family and Friends album. You can also find R.D. Fierro's meditational and devotional book on prayer, which is also entitled Purposeful Prayers, Learning to Pray Like Jesus. As R.D. says in the book, the whispered prayer that stirs the hand of God is one of the most powerful forces in the universe. It's time for all of us to come boldly before the throne of grace, and all of us, and anchored by truth, would like to encourage everyone to be blessed by God's amazing grace. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.